2: Shop now, in store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Before we jump in,
3: we must warn you this episode contains explicit content, such as sexual abuse, that may be disturbing to some people. Listener discretion is advised. Elisa Flores inherited La Luz del Mundo from her parents. As for many others, the church was her backbone, her compass, her everything. When she finally left, she had no idea how to live in a world without the cult. For Elisa, even the simplest things, like choosing an outfit in the morning, turned into a struggle.
4: In the cult, you wear long skirts every day. And my whole life, that's basically all I wore. And I went to the grocery store for the first time wearing pants, and I was, like, so uncomfortable, I felt like everybody's watching me.
3: The everyday experiences people like Elisa go through can be totally incomprehensible to those who have never been inside a high-control group or cult. Because the shackles these organizations impose on their members are invisible to the rest of the world, turning the most mundane actions, like what to wear, into life-altering experiences, charged with terrifying meanings. My interest in La Luz del Mundo is not only professional. I was raised in Mexico, in a high-control Catholic group that required the surrender of all free thought and will at the service of a guy that liked to be called Nuestro Padre, our father. And what a father he was! A clean-cut and strictly-frocked priest that preached purity, devotion, and sacrifice. He raped over 70 seminarians under his care, who were 12 or 13-year-olds. He was a painkiller addict liked his cars to be Mercedes and his jets to be private, and kept at least two women who fathered his own children, whom he also raped. His name was Marcial Maciel, and there are many people I used to be close with who still consider him a holy man. In places where Maciel established his order, if you spoke of him or his organization in unflattering terms, or if you deviated from his approved norms and behaviors, you could get fired, ostracized, even end up going broke or losing your business. Defying Maciel and his organization, as it is with any other cult leader with an army of zealots at its fingertips, was no joke. He had the backing of the country's politicians, media company owners and millionaires, whose wives adored him and entrusted him with their children to teach them true Christian values. He married off their daughters and baptized their grandchildren. His photos adorned all their mantelpieces. In their eyes, he could do no wrong, He was treasured. He had to be protected at all costs. Sound familiar? I understand what Elisa felt after confronting the sick truth about someone you and your whole universe looked up to as a saint throughout your life. When Elisa saw the video evidence from Nasson's trial, she couldn't ignore the truth anymore.
4: All of the things that I had seen and been through, they all started coming back to me. It's like I had blocked all of it, and I excused it because he was my God, and he did no wrong. I couldn't believe that he was, as an apostle of God, still doing those things.
3: The problem is, even though your own blinders may be falling, almost everyone around you, everyone you care for, still sees this person as holy instead of the perverted cheats and frauds that they are.
4: I had like a little mini breakdown. My church was my life and my life was a lie. My whole life, my whole being, everything was a lie.
3: But finding out everything you believed and strived for is a con is barely the first step in the arduous process of untangling yourself from it. You can't stop to mourn or lick your wounds because maybe there's rent to pay children to feed or a job to keep. So you pick up the pieces and re-engage with the free world where you have to think and decide on your own with no manuals, no priests, no gurus or elders around to tell you what's true and what's false.
4: It's like going through a divorce. You go through the disbelief, you go through the anger, you go through, oh my God, it, it can't be true. And it's every single emotion that you go through when you're having a breakup
3: from major life decisions to the most irrelevant choices, like what to eat or how to dress. After you leave a cult, your values and beliefs are stripped from you. You've become a blank slate. And you have to rewrite it all alone, unsupported, because most of your family and close friends have probably chosen to stay. They have chosen the cult over you.
4: Oh, I heard that somebody's talking bad about the apostle don't even eat with him or with her because he's like a Ebola, you know, or like a virus. Suddenly you don't have cousins, you don't have brothers, you have uncles, you're alone because you
3: dare to talk bad about the apostle. Joel Silva explains the experience to a T. Life after a cult is incredibly lonely because you're basically living in exile, no matter how close you physically remain. So no. Leaving a high-control group isn't as simple as walking out through the front door and flipping everyone the finger. Because a cult is not circumscribed to a physical location. It's an entire lifestyle, belief system, community, and state of mind. The conditioning of a high-control group can take years to shake off, always leaving the newly minted apostate with three precious parting gifts. Fear, shame, and guilt. But the good news is, there is life after a cult, and it can be wonderful. I'm Roberta Garza, and this is our last episode of Sacred Scandal, Season 2, Episode 12, Finding the Force Within. Is it really possible to know if the preacher, the fitness class teacher, the yoga guru, the beloved politician or the self-help maven you or a loved one are so taken with, is really a narcissistic psychopath cult leader in disguise. Maybe. There are certainly a number of signs or giveaways that can effectively act as red flags. The very first thing to suss out is how much the group is actually about what they claim to be. Let's say about fitness or spirituality or professional success instead of about the founder or leader. Diane Ben-Scotter, the cult expert we've met in previous episodes, explains it better. There's usually
2: like a mystique around a leader, that they seem like they are of God. And if other people start repeating that and looking to them for, like, sacred truth, then there becomes an environment where you feel like if you're not experiencing that there's something wrong with you you're not looking hard enough within yourself their followers think of them as having the answers as having the truth as being connected to god and so i think oftentimes they begin to believe that about themselves they start thinking of themselves as godlike and they don't want to be questioned by anyone because they really like to think of themselves as being the answer to all of life's questions. This is called the cult of personality.
3: Most groups will acknowledge or educate their followers on their founders or whomever devised their techniques and methods, and that is perfectly normal. But if every class, gathering or session you attend, you're reminded of the greatness of the fearless leader, of how special, how much better than the normal human he or she is, If there are more tributes and rites around that figure than actual skill-set development, or if your mates claim he or she has supernatural abilities, then you might be swerving into cultish territory. Be really concerned if whenever he or she shows up, people swoon, giggle, or show otherwise heightened states of nervousness, anxiety, or euphoria. Because that is designed to be contagious, like teenagers fainting in unison at a rock concert. The main intention is to convince you that the group and its leader are greater, more important than anything or anyone else.
2: What happens when you join a high-control group later in life, you're recruited. That means that you have a loss of your family of origin. This becomes your new family. And there's a grieving that goes on, but you feel like you've met your true family now.
3: Remember how Xochitl Martin's aunt used to make her kiss the apostles' photo every night? How church members display the apostles' portraits prominently in their living spaces? In my school, Maciel's mystical gaze adorned every room, right over the blackboard, bigger than the Christ on the cross next to him. And that's how easy it is for a swindler to become a saint. High control groups, at least for a time, are very good at hiding their toxicity. They present themselves as the opposite of harmful. They are loving, purposeful, and embrace new members with warmth and joy, making them feel special and wanted. This is exactly what happened when Elisa's family found the support they needed to break away from her father's alcoholism. It was in LDM that the Flores found sobriety through a loving community and a clear road to heaven. Or so they thought.
4: You feel like this was the only place that was going to take you to heaven. Only through believing the apostle of God can you go to heaven.
3: Elisa's experience is not exceptional. No sane person just wakes up one morning and says, hey, I think I'm going to join a cult. That's why it's so difficult for the average James and Joes to understand how or why anyone would fall for this life. Are cult members too ignorant to know better? No, it has nothing to do with knowledge or intelligence. People get into these groups because of emotional vulnerabilities. You know, the ones we all have. Joiners are just longing to be better, more spiritual, happier, to be part of something meaningful and relevant. Because that's what cults usually offer. Yes, it's all lies, but at the very start, it's not exactly obvious. Instead, it sounds comforting, self-assured, and convincing. Sochil Martin knows this pattern well.
5: That's where the dangers are. Any organization that says they have all the answers and they tell you how to live your life, those are red flags.
3: Diane Ben-Scotter further explains how cults manipulate people's fragilities to prey on them.
2: They're usually people that really care about the world, that care about wanting to make a difference in the world, that want to be the best person that they can be. So there are some cults that are personal growth cults like Scientology or Nexium, or there's a variety of those kind of cults that attract people who are looking for personal growth and then there's people that feel like they want to be closer to God, they want to be more holy, they want a, a more sacred lifestyle. There's people who are idealistic and just really want peace on earth and really want to find people who are trying to create peace on earth. All you have to do is believe in the leader and that's such a relief. As you can see, joiners cannot simply be labeled
3: as dumb or gullible. Oftentimes they're good, loving people who are hurting or missing something in their lives that they can't quite find elsewhere. That's why all the encompassing sense of warmth and community cults often showcase in their recruiting acts work so well.
5: I would say that when you grow up in a broken family if you find a place or you land in a place somehow through destiny of life where they say they give you all the answers and they say you're they're your only family or imagine even being born into that society that community
3: soon that belief system becomes foundational to your sense of self
2: what happens is that it becomes more than just a belief system it becomes your identity you start to think that you have found the most meaningful thing in the world and that your life has enormous value now. Diane's not just talking
3: theory. In the 80s, she escaped a high-control group as a young woman and has dedicated herself to helping people break free from them ever since.
2: I was 17 years old when I met the Moonies, and I was idealistic. I was really against the war and I had kind of quit school and was worrying my family sick. And then suddenly I met this group and I thought that the Messiah was on the earth and that God had been preparing me to be a follower of Christ and that all of that feeling of disconnectedness and loss and confusion about who I was was traded in for absolute Right self-righteousness, for feeling like I was chosen by God to follow the Messiah. The group that I joined was called the
3: Unification Church, but nicknamed the Moonies because of their founder's name, Sun Young Moon. They gained widespread popularity in the U.S. in the 1970s,
2: partially because of their anti-war stance. You don't want to give that up, plus you have this community, like-minded people that are constantly reinforcing the belief system, and no one wants to give that up because it feels so good. And so when there's things that are contradictory to that, it's easy to rationalize because they're telling you, well, no one else understands. They don't understand God's will. They don't understand God's way. So it should be clear by now that a common trait in people who get tangled in sticky,
3: culty spiderwebs is that they are vulnerable. They are in crisis, sometimes in desperate need of help.
2: Whether they're seeking comfort in a way that they feel confused about the world around them or they feel a loss of community or a loss of purpose in their life, or they're depressed for whatever reason or just looking to use their life in a more valuable way. Those are just human characteristics, but for a predator who is looking to control people, they can take advantage of of those characteristics by offering them easy answers to life's hard questions, a community to offer them a way to feel better about themselves. Once the Kool-Aid has been fully swallowed, The
3: process of isolation begins, and that's when the honeymoon ends, because the demands of a cult and its narcissistic, overpowering leaders are intense. Little by little, the unconditional love and acceptance from before may now require you to follow certain rules, change some behaviors, or make some sacrifices without questioning any of it. Or you might lose it all. Is your faith not strong enough? Are you not ready? Is your love for the teacher or pastor fake? That's what they will start saying to you. Because high control groups only accept full surrender, and that requires you to be completely torn from your previous life, to cut all other attachments so that your only allegiance remains to the group, and especially to its leader. There are no redder flags than that one. More on that after the break.
6: At this
3: stage, the game of us versus them starts slowly and stealthily. It is not unusual that loved ones begin asking why you're spending so much time with your new friends, why you have stopped coming around or quit your good job, why you have changed the way you dress, or any of the other small things the cult will gradually ask you to give up on their behalf. To someone who's starting to grow into a cult mentality, these concerned questions will often feel like direct attacks or accusations. Because that's what you would have been fed, that those people, the others, what you call your friends and family, don't understand your talents, your mission, your gifts, that they are dragging you, that you must get rid of them in order to reach your full potential. Over and over, they would stress that the only people who truly understand you are your leaders and brothers in the cult. And that's when the abuse starts in earnest, because by then, You have nowhere left to run.
2: Isolation is oftentimes a part of a high control group. And when that happens, you can have absolute control over people. You control what they eat, control how much they sleep, how they pray. And they begin to control their own thoughts and emotions in this environment. There's us and there's them. And so you begin to feel like if you go outside of the group, you don't fit in anymore. There's like a cognitive dissonance that happens outside of the group because it becomes so much your entire world, so much so that it feels when you go home to family members that aren't part of the group, you feel like you don't fit in. You have to get back to the group where your comfort zone is as soon as possible. I remember when
3: I was a young girl of 14, I was convinced by Maciel to leave home and join full-time what the Order called their consecrated women. Think of those as nuns, but their vows were not made to the Vatican or to the Pope, but to Maciel's Order alone. I felt ecstatic to be chosen directly by this most holy man, but there was a problem. I had to wait until I was an adult, so my parents couldn't object to losing another child to his group. So he asked me not to tell my family any of it, because they wouldn't understand God's will as he, Mary the Virgin, and I did. He ended by instructing me that, while I waited to turn 18, I should dress more modestly, stop going out to parties and to avoid all TV, magazines, and movies. But it was 1980, and The Empire Strikes Back had just been released. So I did the math, the next episode of the saga, The Return of the Jedi, wouldn't see the light of day until three or four years later. And what if it was too late? What if by then I had already surrendered myself, as one of my sisters had done before me, to one of the communal houses Maciel's women entered, never again to leave unattended or unshackled? Elisa recalls a similar moment as a child inside LLDM.
4: When I was young, Probably about 10 years old, I was in school and all of the girls had their ears pierced and I didn't. And I went to my dad and I said, I want to get my ears pierced. And he's like, No, Mija, we don't do those things. It's against God. And I'm like, What? Why? And so he took me to the minister.
3: The minister was not on Elisa's side.
4: The minister looks down at me and is like, Are you a slave? He doesn't come down to my level. He looks down at me. So I'm already feeling threatened. Then he goes, Because In the old days, that's how they identified their slaves. So are you a slave? I'm like, no. Are you an animal? I'm like, no. And he goes, because they pierced the animal's ears and put a number on them so they know who owns that particular animal. So if you're not a slave and you're not an animal, then you don't get your ears pierced. You see all of these people that have their ears pierced, they're slaves to the devil.
3: The minister's words rang deep and stayed with Elisa for years to come.
4: It scared me so much. And so then I was going to school looking at my friends thinking, oh, she's a slave of the devil. She's a slave of the devil.
3: Elisa headed to school every day where she was surrounded by those satanized by her pastors and parents. LLDM made sure the cute earrings on her favorite teachers and on her little friends reminded Elisa how everyone outside her community was so sinful and corrupt and how lucky she was to be among the apostles' flock. This inflexible barrier between us and them, between the so-called chosen ones and the leftovers out there, being presented as a blessing or a privilege and not as a mental lockdown, is a telltale sign of cult's manipulation. It was very much a part of Masil's shtick when he asked me to join his group of women, but in my case it involved something much more powerful than a plain pair of earrings. I did not obey when the teachers at Maciel's school informed me and my classmates that the Star Wars movies were new age and thus satanic, and that we should not watch them. But I knew that if I became one of Nuestro Padre's consecrated women, if I entered one of those very restricted communities, I would never ever be able to catch up on Han Solo and Princess Leia's next adventure. And that was too much for my teenage soul to bear. Earrings, movies, pants... Makeup and music may sound like frivolous, unimportant affairs. Yet high control groups see them as threats to their very survival, as they do anything that sparks imagination, self-expression, individuality, joy, or creativity. Months later, I bailed out of Maciel's plans for my salvation. He wasn't happy, and accused me of being rebellious and selfish. I guess he found my lack of faith disturbing. 35 years or so later, Star Wars creator George Lucas happened to be staying at the same small hotel I checked into in a lovely corner of Iceland. I regret not having the courage to tell him this story, or to thank him for ultimately saving my life. I hope it's clear by now that people don't simply enter high-control groups because they lack smarts or cunning. Drinking the Kool-Aid is not a rational decision, but an emotional one grounded in vulnerability, urgency, and crisis. And once the cult works their dark magic and people are separated from those they love, alienated from their past lives, first through seduction and then through fear, guilt, and abuse, they have nowhere else to go. Yet, against all odds, some people do muster the courage to leave. Once they do, one of the first things survivors have to work on is recalibrating their minds, by years of neglect, suppression, and denial. They might be the ones telling the truth, but they will be called liars by the members who stay behind. They might want to stop the cult leader's perversion, but they are the ones who will be called sluts and whores by their community. For the first time in years, they might see clearly, but people will accuse them of being crazy, of exaggerating or distorting the facts. That was the case for Elisa when she tried to help her family see the truth behind LLDM's version of Nasson's crimes.
4: I didn't say anything to my other siblings for a while. And then I said, I don't believe in the apostle of God. He is guilty of the things that he did. And I wrote down some of the things that I had seen. And my siblings, they didn't accept what I was telling them. And they made me feel like a liar. Even
3: though Elisa had left the cult, she couldn't shake off the trauma that followed her. And her family did not make it any easier.
4: They re-victimized me and it put me back into that vulnerable state like I was a child again. And the words of the Apostle of God were coming true. Because nobody was going to believe me over him. I left
3: Maciel's group, my family and my city, over 20 years ago. But I still remember when I began doubting him. The endless, sleepless nights praying my soul would not be damned to hell, and the unshakable anxiety and the panic attacks that dragged on for years. I don't believe in that hell anymore, but those panic attacks still visit me to this day. As Elisa shares, the healing might take a lifetime.
4: I still have different things that I'm working on, deprogramming. It's not something that's going to happen overnight, it's a process. I'm still working on that, and I'm still working on myself. I'm still working on healing and realizing that that marriage that I had to the cult is no longer. People
3: who leave cults have to contend with the fact that the darkness they're trying to leave behind is not gone after they depart. It stays alive and well, eating up their fellow members. A predatory leader like Nason Joaquin Garcia can hold disturbing amounts of power, cast out in wide nets before it wanes. Nevertheless, when Sochil Martin was told Nasson had been arrested, she was elated.
5: We did have tacos that night. We went to go celebrate. We were all very excited. My husband was ecstatic.
3: But as consequential as it was, she knew the arrest was only a weakening blow to LLDM's powerful organization.
5: But um, me particularly, I felt like, um, no, this is just one. We need to focus on the rest now.
3: Nason is currently serving his 16-year sentence. Temple attendance has definitely dropped, but El has adapted to the challenges. They have successfully remade the apostle into a martyr, and his designated substitutes firmly rule the church in his name.
5: They're very much still powerful within the organization hierarchy, and that means that they have the ties to the government and political officials and government officials of, of Mexico.
3: Without, without Nasson, LADM continues to hold sway over their communities with the same iron grip, as if nothing had happened. But things did happen. Awful things. More on this after the break
0: more info now.
1: Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one 1/e8 ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before
3: Religious cults tend to mirror each other. Nuestro Padre's order is not so different from LDM's. Before he died, the Vatican sentenced Marcel Maciel to a life of prayer and penance. Conveniently, proof about his crimes and transgressions only came out after he was buried, in the form of three children with two different women. For anyone doing the math... That's three children, too many, for any forcefully celibate Catholic priest. And yet, the organization he founded is still alive, diminished, maybe, but ruled by the Founders' very same accomplices and enablers. Because even after these groups are revealed in their true, ugly faces, many in their wake would rather forget those parts ever existed, minimizing the pain and dismissing the abuses. But that can't erase the fact that people were brutalized, And lives were destroyed. And not everyone got their happy endings.
5: Jane Doe 4, in her victim impact statement, said something that was really kind of heartbreaking.
3: That's Joy Juditsyan, lawyer for the Jane Does, speaking on behalf of Jane
5: Doe 4. And it was that of all the things that she lost, the thing that she was most devastated by was that she lost her belief in God because that was what was the most important to her. And now that she is left with all of her broken pieces, and now that she's left shattered, she has nowhere to turn to. And some victims lost
3: way more than their joy, their youth, their families, or their faith. They lost their lives. Like Karim Leon, who as such, reminds us never found her way out from her LLDM ordeals.
5: Karim was not lucky. She put herself out there, and she went to the authorities, and she did the right thing as a citizen. And in the end, she wasn't listened to. Her voice wasn't heard. She never got her justice. This piece of shit died, Samuel. And he did the most disgusting crimes and committed the most disgusting crimes upon children and women. And Gadim was one of these victims. And she was not heard Every day, there are people out there trying to break
3: free from high-control groups and other types of destructive, abusive relationships. They weigh the odds, the struggles to come. They might feel tired to their bones, and they might remember those that didn't make it, and maybe think there's no way out. But like Elisa shares, there is.
4: There is life outside of the cult. And everything that we were told that our cars would break, our kids would get sick, all of those things are not true. You can still be happy. People are like, if you get out of the cult, you're going to be miserable. You're going to be on drugs. You're going to become an alcoholic. I'm none of those things. We were always taught good citizens make good Christians. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Good hearts and good people are what make good citizens, not Christians, not religion.
3: The first danger for regular folks is to assume that as they themselves are good, smart people, These horrors would never happen to them. But falling prey to a cult can happen to anyone. Sochil Martin knows this firsthand.
5: Destructive cults, they're everywhere. And you don't know you're in a cult. And that's the danger of what these organizations do. And so when you destruct the mind, which is what this leadership of this organization did, the Light of the World, to all of us, to all of the people inside of it.
3: There's a reason it takes so long for cult survivors to break free, if they ever do. So just imagine the kind of strength a victim has to muster when a district attorney or judge asks them to revisit their darkest days and give public testimony, to expose themselves all over again to the hate and harassment they thought was behind them, that they might have even managed to avoid. Elisa asks us to have a little patience for those still in the path.
4: It takes a while for us to get out of that. If we can get out, because there's a lot of people that can't get out. It takes a lot for a person to doubt their faith, to question their faith. But just be patient with the person that has been in a cult, because it takes a long time to heal what was done to them. The different traumas, the different coercions, the different manipulations that that we have gone through, it's not going to be something that's healed overnight because your patience and your love is needed. You can't leave us alone because if we don't have that support, so many have lost their lives because they don't have that support. And a lot of us, we didn't know any better. A lot of us thought that this is the way that life is or the life was supposed to be, that we were born into this and this was our God. Please be patient with us. Please understand that we're not doing things out of spite or out of evil or, or just to be mean, that we're, we're deprogramming, but we have to do it in our own way and our own time. There is
3: hope for those looking to get out from a controlling environment be it LLDM or otherwise. There is help. If you're a victim of a cult, you are not alone. Suchil so Martin champions a group called Survivors Org that helps people share resources and build critical momentum for activism against sexual predators. There's also a wonderful podcast in Spanish called Salir de una Secta, where two sisters joyfully recount their journey from LLDM to freedom, one day at a time. Outside LLDM, Sara Edmundson, an AXIOM survivor, has another podcast called A Little Bit Culty, where she and her expert guests explore how people get ensnared, how to get out, and how to survive the experience. Our resident expert, Diane Ben Scotter, founded Antidote, an organization that fights for education and awareness against high-control groups in public policy. And the Lalich Center in California offers meetups and courses centered on coping with the trauma left behind by high-control groups. And those are just a few. Life after LLDM has been incredibly challenging for all the people whose stories you've heard throughout this season of Sacred Scandal. That is, all the people who are still with us. Some of them are lucky enough to be healing and slowly finding their footing. For her part, Elisa finally feels empowered enough to make decisions about her body without feeling ashamed. She pierced her ears and even got a tattoo
4: I decorated my temple with a tattoo of flower. I felt like I was a butterfly because I was just in this cocoon and had no color. I couldn't look to the sides or anything like that. But when I started getting out, I started ripping that cocoon and started getting color and started being able to fly. And now I can fly and have color and be free and and beautiful. And that's how I feel.
3: Sacred Scandal a Los del Mundo is a production of Exile Content Studio in partnership with iHeart's My Cultura Podcast Network, and is hosted by me, Roberta Garza. Produced by Sabin Jansen with the help of Stella Emmett, Reynolds Gutierrez, and Ana Isabel Octavio. Written by myself with help from Maribel Quesada-Smith. Research by Roberta Garza with help from Reynolds Gutierrez. Additional reporting by Florencia gonzalez garra Guerra-Garcia. Engineering by Hugo Mendoza and Sabin Jansen. Sound design by Pachi Quiñones. Original music by Patrick Hart. Edited by Ryder Alsop, Rose Reed and Maribel Quesada-Smith. Executive producers are Rose Reed, Carmen Graterol, Isaac Lee and Nando Vila. Daniel Bautista oversees audio at Exile Content Studio. Our executive producers at iHeart are Giselle Vances and Arlene Santana. Sacred Scandal was created by Melanie Bartley and Paula Barros. Special thanks to Monk Music Studio. For more podcasts, go to the iHeartRadio app or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts.